Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. This evening we'll be continuing in our sermon series, picking up in verse 15. Hear now the reading of God's Word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this evening asking, O Lord, that you would give us the spirit of knowledge, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, and Lord, that you would speak through the preaching of your word to our hearts, that the eyes of our hearts may be opened and enlightened to your truth. We pray, O Lord, that you would be about the work of sanctification, of transforming us into the image of of our Lord Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. This time of year, uh, about 13 years ago now, uh, after I graduated high school, me and, and one of my other buddies, uh, we had uh, one of our favorite teachers, our ag teacher, uh, who wanted to carry us, take us fishing, uh, offshore fishing. And so we went to the coast on one Friday evening uh, he had a big boat, and so we put the boat in, and we were going to go out and catch some bait fish so that the next day when we went out further uh, into the ocean, we'd have some bait to fish with and could fish through all day long. And so got the boat put in, and everyone got on the boat, and, and uh, also this one other guy that I didn't know um, who, who had lived in that area down near the coast for some time. And so we, we leave from the marina and we go along the little winding rivers in the intercoastal waterway and go up one of these little creeks and catch some little small fish. And on the way out, uh, the guy that I didn't know, he, since he was familiar with the lay of the land uh, in a sense, um, got behind the wheel of the boat. And so we were navigating one of these creeks and the tide was fairly low and uh, we kind of started to come out into one of the main waterways and there's if you've ever been in the intercoastal waterway, there's these pylons with uh, green, uh, with the color green on one side of the sign and the color red on the other side of the sign. And if you're going one way, you're supposed to go on one side of the pylon. If you're going the other way, you're supposed to go on the other side of the pylon. And um, a lot of these pylons, they mark either sandbars or sometimes rocks. And so um, 
we, we were going down the river and or kind of down the creek back out in the waterway and he, he chooses to go on, on, I think, the right side of the pylon. And about three seconds later, I learned that you're actually supposed to go on the left side of the pylon whenever it was that color, whatever color it was. And so, I mean, we hit this thing, these rocks, the ballast rocks is actually what they were. Yeah, running like 15, 20 miles an hour. And, and so I was thrown to the front of the boat and everything's just, what in the world's just happened? And so kind of get up and realize that there's now water coming in the boat and we're a, a decent ways away from some land. And so uh, the engine's still working. And so the guy that we went with, he takes and puts the throttle all the way forward and we kind of just go towards this oyster bar. And... Um, the water starts coming in so fast that the bilge pumps can't pump it out. And so my friend and I, we, we grab two five-gallon buckets and so we just start pailing water out as fast as we can. Um, I mean, at this point, I'm like, I can't even breathe because I'm like, well, you know, it's either bail water or swim. And I didn't want to swim. <laughs> so anyways, we, we make it, uh, long story short, we make it to this oyster bar um, and then we're stranded. Uh, of course, it's, you know, it's late May, um, in coastal Georgia, it's hot, it's sunny, there's no shade. Um, and we call CETO and they're like, well, we'll come. You know, two hours later, they're still not there and the tide has gone down and the boat's just sitting there on the oysters. And somewhere right about that time, I'm sure, I don't remember my exact thoughts, but somewhere right around that time, I, 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 th- I think that I was probably thinking something along these lines. If I'd have known this was going to happen, I wouldn't have come. (laughs) And if not that thought, you know, maybe this thought. If I'd have known kind of the navigation rules of the intercoastal waterway, I would have said something. That moment of regret teaches a lot of things, obviously. But that moment of regret also just teaches something very simple, long story, very simple truth, that knowledge informs the decisions that we make. Really, kind of in a more broader perspective, the things that we know inform how we live our lives and how uh, what decisions we make, what things we do, what things we don't do, And, and Paul recognizes this fact as well. He's, he's obviously heard really good things about the Ephesian church, right? For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. In other words, they're being faithful Christians. They're full of faith. They're full of love. They're doing the things that Christians have been called to do. And so he says, when I hear of these things, I give thanks. But he also longs for something else for them. Right? I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the prayer that he prays for the people at Ephesus, the church that he's planted, the church that he's invested in, the church that he assumes as part of his responsibility, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
And so in light of everything that Paul could be praying for this church, right? And the, the list is endless, right? He could be praying, you know, that they would know more, uh, that they would perhaps know, you know better evangelistic methods that would work in the, in the city of Ephesus, or maybe, you know, that they would know ways to avoid persecution, or maybe that they would, you know, give, be given more knowledge about how to handle the, the wisdom issues in the church. He, he instead prays that they would grow by the power of the Spirit in the knowledge of God. And not just head knowledge of God, right? That the spirit of, of, of wisdom and, and revelation would grow them in the knowledge of him having the, their hearts enlightened, the eyes of their hearts enlightened. He's not praying for them to just simply get a PhD in systematic theology. He's praying that they would know truth, know the truth of Scripture, know the truth of God himself in their hearts, not just that they would know theology proper, but that they would know theology proper in such a way that they believed it with their hearts and that it informed everything else about them, right? That their knowledge would influence the way that they live as Christians, and then he goes on, and he identifies really three things, three things that he wants them to know in particular with regard to God, and not just in regard to God, but in regards to God and how he deals with his people, the first of which is this idea of hope. All right in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Right, so let's kind of start here. Let's start with, 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 with the question, what is actually hope? What, what actually is it? Well, the, the kind of the definition that we use all of the time is this confident expectation in the things to come. Right? It's not just some hopeful thing, something that might happen out in the future, something that you know, has a high probability of happening out in the future, or not even something that I want to happen out in the future, but this confident expectation in the things to come. And whereas here it's, it's stated as a noun, it's also kind of helpful to think about the, 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 the word hope, its meaning as a verb. Right? In other portions of Scripture, we're, we're called to actually hope in things. They, they use it as a verb, like you know, the fruits of the Spirit. It's something we do. It's something we cultivate. It's something that we are given by the Spirit Himself. But nevertheless, it's this confident expectation, this longing in the things of the future. Right? The things that God has given to His people out in the future. Things like becoming partakers of the glory of God. Things like being rid of sin and being made new. Things like thinking a thought without the curse and the fall and my sin impacting that thought in any kind of way. Right, these things, particularly the things of, of the consummation, the things, 
that will happen at the second coming of Christ, thinking of these, this is, this is the content of our hope. And the Bible calls us to it. Paul is, is, is praying that they would know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's praying that they would know those theological truths about what's going to happen and that it would impact their lives in such a way that they would realize things like, like, like tears are temporary, things like pain, you know, that it has an expiration date, that it's not going to last forever. You know, things like, like God has, has called us to live our lives not defined by our losses, things you know, that, that even when we are beaten down and battered up, we never tap out because we will. And right, this, this hope that we have that, that we will win because God will win. But this hope is exclusive to a certain set of people. And the world non-Christians particularly, um, they like to hope. Right? This becomes most evident when you know, a person who is, who is well-liked but not outwardly exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, you know, when someone who's well-liked passes away and you, know, you, you see that obituary posted on some sort of social media and the comments on social media go something like this, you know, you know they're in a better place now, you know, Things like, you know, they're better off. The world likes to hope. But the reality is, is that, that hope is reserved for a, a certain group of people. And that certain group of people are the ones who God has called to himself. Right? Who has the right to hope? Well, it's the ones that, that Christ has called, the, one that, the ones that God has, has called to himself. You know, Paul's kind of narrowing that subset of people down that, that, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Right? So who has the right to hope? Well, it, it's God's people. It's those who've been given the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. It's those who are descendants, the spiritual descendants of God himself and the church. It's those who are, to put it in other terms that we've already seen in the book of Ephesians, those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the, 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 the right to hope is not a universal right. It's not something that belongs to everyone, though almost everyone really may do it, even though it's futile. The right to hope belongs exclusively to you if you are in Christ. We're, we're familiar with this idea of exclusivity. Um, when we were, uh, a couple years ago, when, when Sutton was born, uh, Casey and I woke up very early in the morning at the hospital um, and got a surprise when we got there. We, we learned that she wasn't going to be able to have a normal birth that, and it wasn't even going to be able to be a normal C-section, but it was, she was going to have to be under, put under full um, anesthesia and she would be completely out, which they had mentioned at some point along the way that I wouldn't be allowed in the operating room because of that. But 
they wheel her back and then they kind of put me in this little side room over here and they give me a gown and they give me a cap and they give me, you know, these little things that go over my shoes. And I'm like, well, I, I thought I was just kind of supposed to hang out, but you're giving me all these things to put on. And so, you know, they're starting the surgery and I get suited up and I, I just kind of walk in the operating room. And it didn't take but about five seconds, number one, for me to realize that that was a place that I did not want to be at that moment in time, nor did I have the right to be at that moment in time. Right? It took, you had to either have an RN license or some sort of medical license or some sort of anesthesiology license. You had to have some sort of license in order to belong in that room, or you had to be having a baby or you had to be a baby. One of, some, one of those. <laughs> But none of those rights were mine. I, didn't, I was not supposed to be there. Right? Not everyone belongs in the OR. And nor does everyone have the right to hope. But we do. Christ has given us this privilege. Right? He's opened and kind of pulled back the curtain and let us see into the future that we might long for, that we might have this confident expectation of the things to come, that it might inform the way that we live now. He's given us knowledge of what is in the future so that we might live according to that knowledge in the present. Which means that we, we ought to be people. We are called to be a people who are ourselves are nourished by this hope, right? The Christian hope is not just some innocuous, some impotent kind of thing out there, some sort of idea that just floats around in the Bible and floats around in systematic theologies and floats around off the lips of preachers. It's, this, it's an idea that's supposed to inform my present living, Meaning that, that when, I, when, I'm, when I'm a Christian who's been called to hope, my life is not defined by my losses. Right? I'm comforted by winning in the future. We're a people who live our lives in the light of the future instead of only in the past or the present. To be a people who are called to hope is to be a people who are nourished and encouraged by, by that hope, but also to be a people who encourage and nourish others by that hope. Right? We are to be a people who constantly remind our brothers and sisters of the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Yes, that, that means we also at the same time weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn, but we hope, we encourage our brothers and sisters to hope in what is the future. We don't leave each other behind in sadness, but we point each other faithfully to our future. And Paul's saying, know this in your heart. But know something else too. On into verse 18. The first thing that he would like for us to know is what is the hope to which he has called you. The second thing is what are the riches 
of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now that's a confusing, or it can be a confusing uh, little phrase. And really, the, the grammar and our systematic theology, right? Our, our hermeneutics kind of, and our, our theology behind our hermeneutics offer really two options for interpretation. One option being that same inheritance that we will receive from God, which is mentioned in verse 14. This idea that, that we have an award waiting in the future for us, that we have this blessing, this expected blessing that will be ours, this inheritance from God to his people. That's one option for what Paul means by this inheritance in verse 18. But the second option and the option that I prefer is the idea that we are God's inheritance. That, That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Right, that we who are among God's saints, are his inheritance that he longs for, that he can't wait to be with for eternity. I have evidence for this in the Bible elsewhere. This is an option for interpretation back up in verse 11. But we also have this category given to us in the Psalms all over the place where God calls his people his inheritance or his heritage. It's spoken of that by God himself and the psalmist numerous times in the Psalms. But what does it mean then, if that's the option that we take, that that we are God's inheritance? What does it mean for me that I'm considered God's inheritance? Well, it means that very much in the same way we long for our inheritance, we long for the future blessing that God will give us in Christ. He longs for us, his people, in much the same way. And he looks forward to, to owning us and being with us for eternity. He longs for us. He expects us. He waits for us. But it also means that he values us. It means that he considers his people a blessing and not a burden. It means that this rich and glorious inheritance that he longs for is a wonderful one. That he doesn't despise his people, but that he looks forward to communing and being with his people for all eternity. Again, God considers his people really an anticipated blessing and not a burden. And do you know what it means if God longs for me? Right? If God desires me, one one of his people, if God uh, values me, then it means that he has already set sort of the number that I am worth. He's already determined my worth. He has given me that my dignity, my human dignity comes from God himself and nothing else in all creation, right? That he's already set my value, right? It's fixed. It's static. It can't, it can't change, right? God is the one who has the exclusive rights to determine how valuable I truly am. 
and nothing else in the all creation. Right? He's determined what I'm worth, and he's determined that it's wonderful. It's like when those of us in the room who have kids or those of us who can remember when we were kids, right, the, you, you've seen it, you know, the, the you, kids like markers, and it takes up time, you know, and blank sheets of paper are very cheap. And so you give, the, you give the child some markers or crayons and some blank sheets of paper, and you just let them go for hopefully 30 minutes or so. <laughs> and at the end of that exercise, whenever they're done, or maybe at several points along the way when they're making their masterpieces, they, they bring them to you. You have these little pictures of little stick figures and drawings of families and drawings of airplanes and helicopters and so on and so forth. To you or, or really to, to any average person on the street or someone that you would, you know, some random person, those drawings would be worth negative dollars, right? It's a burden for me to deal with this and put it away. But, but for the parent, right, even though we may not hold on to it forever, right, for the parent, we at least value it and, and we want it. We want to look at it. We want, we want to think about what was going on in our child's mind as they, were, as they were drawing these things and as they were illustrating these things. We want to think about what, what they were thinking and we can see into their hearts. In other words, we, we, have, we value that thing when no one else does. And that's how God thinks of his people when, when you have this idea of, of God's people being his inheritance, the thing that he longs for, this anticipated blessing, right? He longs for his people. He's set a high value upon his people, even when no one else would. And again, knowing these things in our hearts, knowing that God values us, really ought to provide a, a little bit of insulation for us out into the world. Right? When, when other kids say that I'm, I'm dumb or I'm ugly or I'm weird, right? when my friends talk about me behind my back, you know, about my failures and my imperfections, when someone I love reminds me of all the ways that I, I, I measure up short, right? when all of these things come at me and are kind of rolling around in my head. This, these are the things that God has given to his people that they may know in their hearts. Right? That to him, they're worth the blood of his son. That he longs for them. That he can't wait to inherit them for eternity. So he wants us to know of this, this hope. He wants us to know of the value with which he counts his people. And then thirdly, he wants us to know of his power. And when it comes to knowing God's power, the, the Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, demonstrates God's power by really pointing back to some really huge redemptive historical events. In other words, when Paul starts talking about the power of God, the power of Christ, he's really going to illustrate really how magnificent and superabundant God's power is by saying, look at these events. 
and you can see God's power at work. And that is really the same power that just doesn't exist out here in, in ether somewhere, but it's the power of Christ directed towards you. Right? Paul's not just showing us Christ's power for no reason. He's, he's using it. He's, he's encouraging the Ephesians to know it because it's directed at someone. Again, this idea is exclusivity. It's directed at his church, his people. And so when he's, he's telling us to look at these earth-shattering, redemptive historical events, he's not just saying, look at them out there, you know, kind of out here on a timeline. He's saying, look at them and observe the power of God and know that that is the power of God that is directed toward you, his people. And he points at really kind of two overarching redemptive historical events. And, and the first one being the resurrection of Christ Jesus. He's saying when you think of the power of God, l- look at it in the resurrection and how God rose from the dead a man who was actually dead, who was lifeless, whose brain was dead. He's saying look at that. But don't just look at it. Know, like he says in Romans 8, 11, know that that same power, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the one who dwells in you. And he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Right? He's saying, look at God's power, but also know that this is the power at work in your life. And the same thing with Christ's exaltation. Paul goes on a magnificent tangent of, 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 of Christ's power when he raised him from the dead, but not only raised him from the dead, but seated him at the right hand of God the Father in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age as if we could think of anything else, right, that was not, that was not already caught up in his you know, a definition he includes, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Right? Everything has been put under the feet of Christ. Christ has all power available to him. But it's not just power that's available to him. It's power directed towards his people. Right? God's super Abundant power is directed exclusively, primarily toward us, his people, toward us who believe. So again, what do we, what do, we do with magnificent theological truths such as that? Well, we, we have to use them. Again, Paul's saying, know these things in your heart. Have the eyes of your heart enlightened. And I think we need to be enlightened to the fact that this is the power that not only raised Christ from the dead, but it is the power that has raised us from the dead. Paul's about to go into 10 verses in chapter 2 talking about centering around the fact that we were dead in our sins. And it was only because of the power of God that we are made alive. Brother and sister, know that this power that Paul is talking about 
is the power that raised you from the dead, but it's also the power that is going to deliver you safely and soundly into the hands of God the Father at the end of your life. This is the power that will sustain you until you go to be with the Lord. The Christian life is not one that we have been left to live alone. This is one that God furnishes his church with extraordinary power to fight our sin, to grow in our affections, to be delivered safely and soundly to our home. These are the things that Paul longs for the Ephesian church to know to know in their hearts. Well, you may, in conclusion, you know, ask, Pastor, well, that's great, that's good and all, but, but how, do I, how do I know these things? How do, how do I get to know these things? How do, I, how do I do what Paul's wanting me to do? No, the reality is, is you're doing it right now. You're sitting under the reading and the preaching of the Word. You're giving yourself to hear from God You're giving yourself today to the word, to the sacraments, and to prayer, and to fellowship. You're giving yourselves to these things. And I'm not blind to the fact that this is Sunday evening. You're here because you want to know these things. And so an application to, to, to tell you, you know, get off of your get off your rear ends and come and know these things, that would fall upon deaf ears. You're you're here. You're listening to the word of God. My encouragement then is to keep on doing these things. There are 175 things at least that you will regret the last 10 seconds of your life. Your efforts to come here no matter the cost, no matter the pain, no matter the time, no matter anything else, your efforts to come and to know these things by submitting yourself to God and listening to his word and soaking it in, those are things you will never regret for the rest of eternity. And so, brothers and sisters, keep doing what you're doing right now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we simply pray the prayer that the apostle prayed for his church. O oh Lord, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of yourself, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we may know what is the hope to which we are called and what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and what are the immeasurable greatnesses of your power toward us who believe. And Father, that you would not just make us Einsteins, but that you would give us faithfulness in the Christian life as a result. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.